difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tosh Robinson, here again with Scott Tobias and Genevieve Kosky. Keith Phipps is out this week. Uh, we think he's tracking down some mystery inspired by some words that surfaced in his alphabet soup. It was a little hard to parse his last message. Last week, we looked at the sunlit L.A. noir of Roman Polanski's Chinatown. This week, we're looking at its modern equivalent, David Robert Mitchell's wandering, shaggy, endlessly referential mystery, Under the Silver Lake. Mitchell makes it clear throughout the film that he has equal parts love of and loathing for L.A., with its quirky, self-involved scenesters, its behind-the-scenes manipulators, and its endless hunt for fame and meaning and satisfaction. But that may be the only thing that's really clear in his script, which has a jobless wastrel named Sam, played by former Spider-Man Andrew Garfield, tracking down a sort of formless mystery. See, this neighbor Sarah, played by American Honey's Riley Keogh, moved in, and he kind of wanted to have sex with her. And then she kind of abruptly moved out. Like, that's a mystery for the ages, right? <laughs> At least it starts to feel like a mystery for the ages once you bring in a disappeared billionaire, a serial dog murderer, a guy running around in a bad pirate costume, a naked female assassin in an owl mask, secret messages in music, secret messages in a crackpot zine, secret messages in a video game magazine, secret messages on stadium <laughs> scoreboards, and really just secret messages everywhere. Under the Silver Lake isn't as tightly plotted as Chinatown, but in its way, it's just as stark and cynical about human nature. It's unclear whether Mitchell thinks there are any central truths we can get to, and whether they're fundamentally meaningful, and whether we can do anything about them. It's also not necessarily clear whether he thinks Sam has tapped into something fundamental and significant about the world, or he's just another paranoid seeing signals everywhere. We'll dig into how these two mystery films compare after this break. Who moves out in the middle of the night? Nothing strange about it. She wanted to leave. How does that not make sense? I don't understand why she didn't tell me. Maybe she didn't like you. Maybe she knows you're poor and haven't paid your rent. I found some kind of code or like secret message in her apartment. It means to stay quiet. Our world is filled with codes, subliminal messages from Silver Lake to the Hollywood Hills. Could any of this be connected to Sarah? I know this girl. There's a message in the music. Really think you're gonna find a hidden message in a pop song? One, two, three. Can't quite see it, but I'm close. Honey, how are you? Mom, I'm fine. Mostly fine. Um. Why do we assume that all of this information is what we're told it is? Maybe there are people out there who are more important than us, more powerful, communicating things in the world that are meant for only them and not for us. Yeah. Oh, you think that's weird? A little. Welcome to purgatory. Good to be here. You're living in a carnival, hoping to win a prize. What are you going to win? So what did you guys think of Under the Silver Lake? I think I had every possible reaction you could have to a movie <laughs> to Under the Silver Lake, which which feels appropriate. You know, I, I loved it. I hated it. I was excited by it. I was bored by it. I was angry. Like I perhaps foolishly in hindsight took notes while watching this movie thinking it would, it would help me during this discussion and like scrolling through them now. It's just it's all nonsense <laughs> so but you know it uh it's a it's a memorable movie experience and one that definitely has stuck with me in the 24 hours admittedly since i only uh 24 hours since i've watched it but it's one that invites you to like think about it but also kind of mocks you for thinking <laughs> hard about it it's a um, really good description which is fun question mark i think i don't know i'm still How do you feel sure. about being mocked yeah i mean i enjoy it like i do have a kind of a deep love of trolling and this movie does feel like a, a giant troll in a lot of ways but there's a lot more to it than that you know the it's very interesting filmmaking very interesting tone a very I think very good performance by Andrew Garfield that's kind of holding it all together as it just like kind of spirals out like an out of control top, you know, but uh, it's definitely not a movie experience I regret having. <laughs> so there you go. Ringing endorsement, I guess. <laughs> Scott? Yeah. I mean, I think the company behind it, A24, which normally likes to distribute movies like this also feels like 
people are going to have uh, difficult experiences with it because they're releasing it in a very confusing way, mostly mm-hmm. on mostly on VOD in a few theaters. I mean, it's a movie that reception-wise is analogous to Southland Tales, mm-hmm. the, the Richard Kelly movie. Uh, both films premiered at Cannes. They were fo- both follow-ups to cultishly adored movies. In Southland Tales, it was Donnie Darko. Mm-hmm. And here is It Follows. Mm-hmm. It was his last film. And they just completely bombed out at Cannes. And so they left them hanging in general release. And then they sort of, you know, a cult following sort of awaited them later. And I feel like extremely confident in saying that Under the Silver Lake will have a very warm <laughs> cult uh, awaiting it just as Southland Tales has. But to me, this was the experience that I wanted from Southland Tales because I fucking love this movie. <laughs> uh, I, I just I just think it's such a hoot. It's such a this weird shaggy dog mystery that that i think is kind of descriptive in its way in a very modern way of how we trying to make sense of of a world that's full of signs and wonders but doesn't really make sense so we're trying to put together this puzzle while the pieces don't really fit that gesture feels right to me it's just loaded with homages or whatever to movies that i love and we talk about we'll talk about chinatown but obviously the long goodbye is a huge one here mm-hmm. rear window is a huge one uh mulholland drive is a huge one i mean so so it's really cool to see those references here uh it's full of really funny and weird and unexpected set pieces it's got really cool you know music drops uh mm-hmm. a, a, a devotion to rem's monster which kind of warms <laughs> my heart um strange currencies is the closing credit music which is just Perfect. Um, so I really, I, I had a really good time with this film, even though I, I fully recognize that it is an alienating experience, or has been an alienating experience for many, and, and is likely to be an alienating experience for maybe the majority of the people who encounter it. But I appreciated it on that level too, because uh, you know I saw it the same day as Avengers: Endgame, which is so out to please the audience 100% of the time and hit every pleasure center and this movie is just such a little bastard of a film and I, I, I kind of I kind of like that about it uh, well I really enjoy seeing that level of enthusiasm I saw this for the first time at Fantastic Fest in Austin uh, at the Alamo Draft House last year and I had an experience similar to yours maybe maybe not quite that enthusiastic mm-hmm. but I found it just this like heady trip of a movie that was so unexpected and so curious so confusing so exciting because you never really knew where it was going and i rewatched this film last night for this podcast and i kind of hated it a little bit <laughs> uh so i would recommend uh, not not rewatching it but like andrew garfield's performance is fine but the way the character's written he's just oh he sucks he's yeah he's repulsive he's awful <laughs> Yes, yeah. he's just a terrible person, you know. I mean, he, everyone in this movie is there. There is not a, a sympathetic character. I mean, maybe Riley. Yeah, Keough's definitely Riley. Uh, what does she do? What does she? Why, why, she, why do you want to feel for her? She seems nice and not at all smart. Like she is, yeah. she is very deliberately channeling Marilyn Monroe. Apparently, the the scene where she swims around on the pool and then barks like a dog, yeah. uh, is directly modeled after a uh, Marilyn Monroe scene shot for a film that was never completed. Uh, and that scene is available on the internet. Not not the dog barking part, but the mm-hmm. like swimming around and and talking. And you know, the way she dresses in all white is evocative of like Marilyn Monroe's one of Marilyn Monroe's most famous costumes. And and you get the clip from. Uh, how to marry a millionaire early on that kind of makes that connection clear and Marilyn Monroe's famous thing was being extremely attractive to men and not very bright like that was the uh, image that she put out and that she she kind of lived in and I think that's what Riley Keough's character is kind of meant to bring across here but yeah that said you've got this guy who has no job has Uh no interest in a job uh (laughs) actually blows up with anger towards the end of the film because uh the world keeps asking him what he does for work and he he not only does nothing he has no interest in anything (laughs) really except codes he's about to get evicted uh he shows no interest in trying to do anything about that whatsoever he has nothing in life except half-hearted sex with whoever throws him throws themselves at him and like looking for secret messages and things which he's really good at but he doesn't do anything with it except chasing all these meaningful things around in weird circles plus he smells like a skunk I was plus, he say, plus he stinks <laughs> plus he smells bad uh yeah he's just he's kind of a drip and especially by the end of the movie he's kind of a violent entitled drip but the, well i mean uh, how, how close to the end is him beating up a couple of kids 
Not, yeah. not very close to the end. Yeah. Oh my god. It's it is. Uh, I I actually paused them, stopped and paused the movie and checked on this. It is forty minutes into the film that you get that speech about feeling like there are secret messages everywhere, which is the first time in the film he actually shows like an active interest in something. Yeah. Well, you know what it reminded well, me. Well, he has an active interest in his neighbor. Yeah. That's true. No, it's no, it's not true. It's a very passive interest. Like he, which, which neighbor? What the the frequently topless bird. Oh no, neighbor? no, I meant Riley Keough. Like he, yeah. he goes over there. Yeah, but even that is, it's very passive. Like he, he looks at her butt through his binoculars because he's already sitting out there with the binoculars looking at a different neighbor, and he's like, his whole attitude is, hey, that's nice. And then he wanders over there, and she invites him in, and he's like. Hey, now we're in your bed. We're making out. He just comes across as so stoned mm -hmm. until that 40 minute mark when he suddenly, when he's <laughs> lying in a uh, tub full of tomato juice after his skunking and like he suddenly comes alive and for the first time he comes into focus as a character and possibly for the last time. Yeah. Well, I would say though that that arc and uh, the way he behaves is closest if you're talking about any Ellie Noir to The Long Goodbye. And the idea of, of the topless neighbor, I mean, that's the most direct homage in the movie to uh, Elliot Gould and his uh, number of their younger w women in, in The Long Goodbye, but they're always kind of like walking around topless and that's just part of the part of the scene. So that's sort of a, a wink into that. But it is it does take a while in that film for the character to kind of get around to doing kind of a, a, some sleuthing. And what it, well, the other thing it reminded me of, and again, it's that continuum of L.A. Noirs is uh, the Jackie Tree horn scene in L the Big Lebowski, specifically the one piece of investigation that uh, Lebowski attempts in the movie, which is when Jackie Treehorn writes something on a notepad, he, and, and when he leaves the room, he sneaks over and you know and traces over it, and ends up being you know this lewd picture, and that's that's <laughs> it's the end of his investigation, and I, I feel like that there's that connection there between those two movies and that and in that kind of tradition you know another see the kind of again this movie i just find it funny a lot of the time and that's kind of what brought a lot of it across it just was sort of a hoot i'm thinking of the scene in under the silver lake where he's following this package or this box that's been taken out of riley keogh's apartment by someone and he's so mammoth oh right. yeah that's true and uh and he's just seeing where it's going, and eventually, he eventually he's on a paddle boat, following them on a paddle boat, doing his little investigation. Which feels like a Chinatown homage. The, is there a China? Is there a the uh, the boat when he's when they're he's in the reservoir taking pictures? No. You know. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking the. Re I mean, obviously, there's, there's a big reservoir swimming scene in the movie too. True, that, yeah. that definitely has that Chinatown thing going for it. But there's something just so funny and amateurish and half-assed and futile about that style of, of getting in a paddle boat to do this little this sleuthing and then ultimately this package just ends up on dry land and he can do nothing about it because he's in the, in, in the hands of a pirate in the hands of right. the guy in the cheap pirate costume who lunges out from behind a tree grabs it like it's treasure and goes running off with it like he's got an appointment somewhere no it's a, he's a pirate of course it's treasure <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of urgency at times to parts of this movie that don't go anywhere and and don't make any sense and i he comes back to his house to find the owl's kiss there and for like five seconds he's terrified for his life and then that whole thing just kind of peters just out screeches away just yeah. yeah i mean it's it there's so many things in this movie he he goes swinging in the reservoir somebody shoots at him kills the person he's with which weirdly emulates the, the cover of his Playboy. favorite mm -hmm. porno mag. Uh, and then he just kind of goes home naked and no more is said about any of it. And it's just that pattern keeps repeating throughout the movie. He finds out these things that seem important and that don't have anything to do with anything and don't lead anywhere. I so, mean, I, I think his passivity as a character is like entirely purposeful. Like, oh, I, yeah. like this, this movie feels of its era as much as Chinatown feels of its era, you know, like, like the passive watching, the passive following, you know, punctuated with spurts of inexplicable, you know, violence and rage. Like it feels like an excoriation of a of a generation, you know, or certainly of a of a certain of a lifestyle that is encapsulated here, you know, in LA. 
And I think that Andrew Garfield's character, Sam, is meant to embody like all those aspects in a overtly negative way. Like I don't think we're supposed to like him or, or think of him as a hero at any point. No, I mean, I think if you do, then the film reveals itself to be so grotesquely mis- misogynist for one yeah. that, that that you that it would be intolerable. So I think you do have to kind of yeah, and the film does as good a job as it can to make him as actively repulsive as possible. Um, and uh, it's not easy. I mean, it's not never easy when you're following one character through a movie to remind your audience that that this guy's got some problems. And also, does he kill dogs? Is he? Yeah, the, is there he... is. There's a really big question of whether he's the dog killer. Yeah. <laughs> And the film, I don't think, is in any way engaged with answering that question. I, no, I think it wants to confuse you. I think it is explicitly trying to give you different potential answers because, like, he's asked a couple times about his relationships to dogs and, like, oh, he had a dog and it died. Oh, actually, he had his grandma's terrier bit him, so he doesn't like dogs. Oh, he's carrying these treats around because, you know, the girl he likes has a dog. You know, like, there's many conflicting explanations for why he has those uh, biscuits in his pocket and, I mean, and what his relationship with dogs point, is. We see him pick up those biscuits, which are just like mysteriously laid out in, in the park. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he then has that an elaborate explanation for them later just seems so strange. But also, was that a dream <laughs> sequence? Like there's that was a dream sequence. Yeah, actually, yeah. it was a dream sequence. He but it, because he, but the human barking is again. he is he dreaming about something that he's already got in his pockets? Like I, I it's just well, it's a Lynchy. I mean, there's some Lynchy in aspects oh, of yeah. the film the, too. This movie, okay. So let's let's talk. Is this a movie that can be solved, or is it resolutely preventing well, you from I mean, solving? I think, it. I think it's, that it's a movie that can be more solved than passively watched. There is, in fact, inevitably a a Reddit detective's thread uh, that is resolutely picking apart this movie and identifying the references. And when you see how many of them there are, you know, when you see it's not just the idea of voyeurism that motivates him to be out on his balcony watching his neighbor with binoculars, that sequence is set up and staged and filmed exactly like a specific scene in Rear Window. Uh, The Mulholland Drive tie-in, like one of the significant actors in Mulholland Drive, is the guy here with the crazy zine that that gives him all of these stories. Mm -hmm. There are all of these visual references that are very, very specific. Whether they help you unravel what the film quote unquote means, I don't think that they do. But I do think that seeing all of these very specific references leads you in a direction of uh, believing that Mitchell is doing a lot of very specific things. Those things may be emulation, they may be homage, they may be adoration uh that doesn't necessarily mean the film's story goes somewhere yeah, yeah maybe misdirection i think i think yeah. that this film uses homage and reference as as misdirection as, as red herring a lot there's so many red herrings in the film on every level i think what you end up keying in on if you're not really sweating those details and like god almighty i only i've only seen this film once i can't sweat those details is <laughs> just the vibe of the thing you know and and what it, it might actually be saying about the human condition and about you know the specific type of of person the specific in this specific era in which we live uh, and on that level the film kind of resonates uh, to me the critical scene in the movie well there are two that i really love but the scene that absolutely blew me away was the scene with the with the piano man with yes we're definitely going to get into that stunning. one stunning just this idea of like our engagement with art or in this case with music that is personally meaningful to us being revealed as so soulless and so programmed and it, for this response and so false to be confronted with that idea is just so powerful and strange and, and just inspired the way this film the, and, the way this film kind of expresses those and ideas. also the idea that it's not for you that seems to be what sets him off when the piano man tells him like the messages aren't for you like you know like this this thing that you love isn't actually yours yeah. but, but also i mean it's it's specifically the revelation that the nirvana song mm-hmm. was calculated for him to rebel to and that he did rebel to mm-hmm. it like yeah. that's what what gives him the turning point so when scott when you talk about this film as like being a kind of an excoriation of an idea of what millennials look like uh you you kind of said you know that there's no point in here where he's the hero i think in this scene he is the hero i i think in this scene yeah, he keys into something that matters and he takes like immediate response on behalf of his entire generation to strike out at this thing that is cynically manipulated like everything that he loves 
Yeah, that's maybe true. I mean, maybe, you know, it, it, I think broadly you can talk about him as a bastard, but in that in that moment you can feel a certain real pain. I mean, here's a guy who has a Kurt Cobain like poster over his bed. I mean, this signed is... by Francis Bean. <laughs> <laughs> I know oh, such so many so many fun details in this movie, but uh, what a scene! I just think it was just like, you know it reminds me, I guess, of the. Um, Southland Tales scene that everyone loves the with uh, it's like a music video it's set to the killer song during sure. that yeah it just has that it just I has that, soul, but I'm not that moment of just this wonderful like big set piece in the center of the movie that kind of it's like, also in both movies that scene is a moment of specificity and clarity in the middle of like a whole lot of fuzziness like mm-hmm. you understand what Andrew Garfield is feeling in that sequence like why he's angry and like what he needs to do now, if you spend any time examining that scene, like as it doesn't make any more sense than us does, he breaks into the compound of an insanely rich man and he walks. He's very on him. adept at breaking into places, <laughs> or, or just walking into places. Just walking yeah. into places, and uh, the man just proceeds to reveal the secrets of the universe to him, just like mm-hmm. straight out, like lays out. Now, granted, the guy has a gun and is planning to shoot him, yeah. but the fact that he greets an intruder in his home with a medley and a clearly prepared monologue that's just like, let me lay out the themes of the movie for you, my yeah. friend, is you, someone, nuts. Someone talked about this scene as being a parody of, of The Matrix Reloaded. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's definitely, that was the other thing when you were talking about <laughs> yeah. uh, what it reminded you of. It definitely reminds me of The Matrix yeah. uh, confrontation with the architect. Yeah, and I guess the other big scene, and this is maybe to kind of grapple with with the uh, misogyny and perceived misogyny of, of the movie, is the drone scene, mm. which is just, which kind of is a moment that really upends uh, kind of the voyeuristic thrill that we may yeah. be experiencing through Sam's lens that they get to the, they use this drone and they have it set up and the and this beautiful young woman takes off her shirt and then just starts weeping. And so we're confronted with this, just something I haven't seen before. I just haven't seen that in a movie before. Cause I've seen, you see so many movies where you're, Spying on somebody, mm-hmm. they disrobe. I mean, it's, but, it's but to, but so to get this, this reminiscent moment of, just, of just utter discomfort and, and sadness and, and melancholy in the middle of something that's supposed to be just kind of this juvenile erotic thrill. It's so reminiscent of uh, De Palma's body double mm-hmm. and and the specific voyeurism in that film. But then on top of that, to me, it just it evoked all of these like. 80s sex comedies uh, in the like the Revenge of the Nerds style where it's hilarious that like our boys are invading women's privacy and like staring at their bodies and drooling over them. And then here you have this moment where they're doing exactly that. And the target that they're looking at is revealed to have a humanity and they don't engage with it at all. They mm-hmm. have no idea what to do with it. Sam's like, okay, I guess I'm going to go. And his, his friend doesn't even like turn off the drone. They're, they're both basically like, I can't fap to this. Like that's, that's the tone of it. Yeah. It's uh it's an amazing scene. I agree with you. Uh, there are a lot of moments in this film that, hit home in a scary or fascinating or or weird or wild kind of way. There are moments that feel so Lynchian. There are moments that feel so Hitchcockian. And then the next thing you know, you're off on some weird little fillip of nonsense or staring in into a, a toilet bowl full of shit. Oh, like, God. <laughs> what, what, what are we what are we even doing here? I don't know. Oh, but that scene that scene's great too. I, I love the bit where, where where he's got the lead singer down and he's asking about this song that has a message in it and he's listing he's listing all the songs that the band did. <laughs> <laughs> that that they did that he didn't write and he's like those are all the hits. <laughs> oh so good yeah there's some weird cruel humor i the scene that you mentioned where he beats up the kids oh, something man. else that played really different for me like the first time it just first time through it felt like this huge catharsis uh-huh. like he has been targeted by like anonymous people who've made his life a lot worse and that he will never be able to do anything about oh no they're right over there and he goes and beats the crap out of him and it felt like such a cathartic moment watching it again it's like oh he really is hurting those <laughs> stupid sure? small children yeah, he definitely is man yeah so Our yeah hero. it's uh it's kicking, a, kid, kicking kids in the gut <laughs> it's a difficult and complicated movie we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between chinatown and under the silver lake You're saying you've done this before? Codes? 
I wrote the music your dad grew up to. Half of what you sang along to as a kid, and I'm still doing it. And these teenagers are dancing to my music. I want it that way. Tell me why. You're telling me there's hidden messages in old pop songs? Movies, television shows, everything you know. Why? That's pop culture, isn't it? Floats away like tissue paper. Yeah, I blow my nose. I find a used Kleenex, I recycle it, and there is your wedding song. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about the things they have in common. Obviously, we need to start off with <laughs> talking about conspiracy movies. <laughs> We've brought up a bunch about how uh, how tight Chinatown is, how one thing clearly follows another, follows another, follows another, how the whole film is just a progression. And Silver Lake is like, it's like pickup sticks. It's just like all of these brightly colored things just kind of thrown on the floor. That was something else that really hit me on a second viewing is like, so many of these things don't connect to each other in any way. Like the zinester that he finds out about the dog killer and the owl's kiss from, that comes out of nowhere. He just sees that zine somewhere and is like, oh, this seems interesting. I'd like to talk to this person. <laughs> and then for whatever reason, the incredibly paranoid recluse just instantly invites him into his home and again like lays out this monologue there's this weird feeling oh, but conspiracy theorists love talking telling yeah, people about I, their that conspiracy was, I felt theories like that, whole, I, that was plausible to <laughs> really me. Okay. he needs somebody to show his life masks too <laughs> but that, that does end up being a, a very interesting uh contrast between the two films is like in chinatown you have this conspiracy that practically everybody the movie interacts with seems to be in on and every time jake pushes a little further there's feedback that gets him hurt you know there's there's pushback whereas in under the silver lake wherever he goes so sam is embraced in most places with open arms and a monologue about here's what our secret conspiracy looks like here's what our crazy scene looks like like he walks into that rooftop party where the hottest band in town is playing nobody checks his credentials nobody asks him if he's on the guest list nobody asks him, what are cookie. you doing there <laughs> he no he gets the cookie at that, at that party, party okay. to get him into another party yeah. But there are two other parties in that movie that at least two other parties that he just walks into. Nobody questions his right to be there. He gets kicked around a little eh, bit. Yeah. He, he doesn't get his up. nose cut off though. No nose, no nose slashing, but but that is interesting that the plotting of both of these movies cuz because they they both feel kind of like shaggy dog stories, but Robert Town has crafted a, and Genevieve pointed this out well on the last podcast just you know, a mystery where everything seems so tightly put together and so well thought through. And uh, one thing always leads to the next and you're drawn into what is an extremely complicated narrative that is as well explicated as possible. That is not the interest of Under the Silver Lake at all. It's interested in sending you off into all of these little tributaries that lead nowhere. Yeah, but I, I think that Under the Silver Lake evokes paranoia much more successfully it's trying to evoke paranoia and it succeeds in a way that chinatown is is not like i mean there is some paranoia in chinatown but it's based in something that's really happening whereas i think in under the silver lake it's evoking this idea of like well once you see one conspiracy you see conspiracies everywhere and they maybe they all tie together and there there's codes everywhere and you can kind of you can lose your mind with with this kind of thing like that's what like extreme paranoia does to you and it like kind of like fragments ideas and then puts them together in in weird new ways you know and i think the catch-all nature of the conspiracy I don't even want to use the singular form of the word there in, in Under the Silver Lake. It creates that sense of, oh, this is like nothing is real. You know, the, like everything is manipulated. You know, it's a very manipulated movie in form as well as in story. And I do think that's entirely purposeful. I don't know if I like it. I still don't think I, 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 I you know, but I respect what it what it's doing in a way similar to how I respect the tightness of what of how Chinatown goes about what it what it's doing. You know, like there, I think there are films that have that are playing around with similar ideas, but to very different ends, and they go about it in very different ways because of that. I was thinking about with Under the Silver Lake about it being a reflection of modern condition. I, I, I'd, I'd seen 
you know, because there were a million 20th anniversary film, uh, pieces about the Matrix, uh, I saw that again for my own 20th anniversary piece about the Matrix. And how interesting it was to see that film, which is about the world as we understand it, as it's ordered being wrong, and then us having to find some conspiratorial paranoid way to piece it all together, to find some alternate theory for how the world works. And, and, and you kind of get that feeling from under the silver lake to me of just of someone who just is completely out of power who has no ambition even to power who doesn't have any direction in his life and who is grasping at these straws and this and somehow at the end of this you know trail of breadcrumbs that he's following or this these multiple trail of breadcrumbs that it's eventually going to lead him to an answer for how the world works and an answer that in, and perhaps also lead to him finding his place in it, uh, because he doesn't have one. Um, and I, I just think there's something very modern about under the silver lake in that respect. And do you think at the end, the, that ending is meant to make it feel like he has found a place in the world. Like it feels like he's found a place for a moment, but the, the, the way it's directed, like the way he hangs out on that balcony, looking at the people entering into his apartment that he no longer cares about, yeah. uh, feels like he's come to a place of, of peace and comfort, but he's really just like hanging out on the balcony of a warm woman he doesn't know and is just shagged. Oh, yeah. I don't see it as peace and comfort. Yeah. I, I think he's just like kind of returned to his apathetic, meaningless state mm. that he began in. And is, he's, he's back to wondering what the bird says. And the bird isn't saying anything. That is so critical, though, right? That insight at the end where, where yeah. you're just wondering what the hell is this bird saying? And, and ultimately... Yeah, you're searching for meaning where there is none. Right. And that's kind of what the whole movie is <laughs> it's not necessarily directed in the in the same way or like meant to be reminiscent but man uh, him hanging out over at her place and asking her what's the bird saying and and the light coming through the curtains with the the birds silhouetted in oh, it that's such reminded a cool me so, it is it's beautiful and it reminded me so much of the end of blue velvet where they're all standing around in the kitchen, like looking at that horrible fake bird uh, outside the window. <laughs> and that just said, sort of that same, like looking bird, for that symbolism. Bird, that bird is, represents everything that's peaceful and innocent again, right? Yeah, you know. You, don't think, you think it actually has, it, a, has some sort of a... I, I, I think it represents all kinds of uh, very David Lynchian stuff. Okay. But, uh, you know, what's it, what's it singing? What's it really singing? What does it singing mean? Maybe if we can decode it, we'll finally know. The the line I kind of grasp onto because of course you you know the Chinatown has forget it Jake it's Chinatown the very mm-hmm. famous line uh, the line I kind of grab onto is something that Riley Keough says uh, when he finally talks to her and she's in this unreachable place um, and she and she said her line is might as well make the best of it and I just think mm-hmm. that I feel like that is kind of what ultimately is the takeaway from the whole movie that it's and it's not a positive takeaway at all it's just kind of like the whole movie is about showing you why it's not a positive takeaway yeah it's just like we're screwed and we don't have we're not in control of the world in which we live and so you know the solution is it might as well make the best of it which is which is an extremely dark and melancholy statement in that Mm. circumstance i do wonder if there's a degree to which like chinatown you get the impression that from everything Jake can see, the world is run by cynical, powerful, rich people who know know what's going on. They know what's going on. They're in control. They've been doing this for like a long enough time for like looking at Evelyn and her daughter for it to literally be generational. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at least they know what they're doing. Whereas in Silver Lake, I'm not sure that there is a conspiracy where the center can hold. Like the closest thing you come to seeing any sort of control that knows what it's doing is the songwriter. And like the songwriter is clearly insane. Well, and the whole underground tomb, uh, but tombs for the are, wealthy. Those people are nutballs. Like they're, sure. they're sealing themselves into hermetic tombs under rock and they're all going to die. Sure, but they have a reason for doing it and a plan to achieve it. You know, like that whole thing, the the use, we, I guess that maybe this is a way to transition into another one of our connections, with, oh, which yeah. is wealth and power. Like the whole thing in Under the Silver Lake with this, you know, billionaire class creating this underground, I don't even want to call it society, but... Tomb. Tomb, yeah, yeah. It's it's tomb culture. Yeah. It's tomb core. (laughs) Yeah, yes. Uh, It feels like 
a perversion of the we can do anything because we're the wealthy masters of the world, you know, that that is that we see in Chinatown creating this more practical plan, but no less hubristic. Is that the word? It's ridiculous what they're doing, but they can do it because they are who they are in a way that no one outside of that circle could achieve it the same way that Noah Cross in Chinatown is doing something that only he could do because of who he is and what he has. And I, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I think that the, <laughs> the whole tomb core thing is absolutely absurd and yeah. uh, funny, but also kind of maddening that like that is what the missing billionaire part of this conspiracy which does feel like one of the most direct homages to Chinatown. Yeah. Like that's how it resolves. Yeah, and they're at the center of they're ultimately at the center of this crazy world and in in control of it. Even though it's it is absurd in the case of out of the silver like both movies do come down to discovering that the the rich guy holds all the power. Um which is seems about right. And he's going to take a bunch of women down with him. Yeah. yeah, a very small number of women, though, compared yeah. to to you know Chinatown's like vast conspiracy. It's like swallowing up farms and ruining people's livelihoods, and uh, just like literally sealing control over the entire valley to a small group of dedicated, cynical people. This is like I'm going to take three pretty gullible women with me when I go. And I boy, are there a lot of of drifting gullible women in that yeah. movie? We we could talk about uh, that's something else on our list: women and their saviors. Like both of these films do eventually come to a point where uh, a male protagonist is trying to rescue a woman. That there's sort of a question of whether he. There's certainly a question of whether he can, but there's also a question of whether he should be trying mm-hmm. and whether he's just making things worse. Yeah. Well, Jake has that line in China to tower he's like i tried to keep someone from getting hurt and ended up making sure she was hurt you know and that it's kind of what happens with, mm-hmm. with evelyn you know I, I, it is what happens with evelyn there's no there's no kind of about it you know like the intentions for as you know pure as the intentions are and that is that purity is is debatable the the outcome is tragic and in Under the Silver Lake, I think the purity of intentions are even more debatable, um, and that the outcome is maybe slightly less tragic, but it definitely makes the savior impulse seem more foolish. Yeah, I'm curious to ask about Under the Silver Lake and how he feels about her, and that mm-hmm. is there a connection there that he feels for her? that is deeper than some other random young woman that he he's trying to bed or is or is it just simply the strangeness of her disappearance that he's trying to resolve i think it could be the strangest i think it could also be just that the fact that she is not there for him to look at anymore like so so much of that character is tied up in his voyeurism like him watching people him looking at people and whatever thrill he gets from that and like that is how he imprinted on her i guess you know or uh and he's like hypnotized by her whatever whatever you want to call it and then suddenly she's just gone and like yes there's a wanting to find out why but i think there's also maybe just an undercurrent of desperation like i don't have this person in my world to observe and project onto anymore i think he's obsessed with unanswered questions Mm -hmm. i think for him if he had, if she had dis- disappeared under the exact same mysterious circumstances, but he had never gotten closer to her than the voyeurism, I don't think he would have pursued it. I think there's an open question in his head that she said that they would sleep together and then they didn't. Yeah. Why not? Like, why would she tell him that? Mm. And then disappear. Like, it doesn't make any sense. There doesn't seem to be any point where he suspects foul play. He doesn't seem to be particularly scared for her. And about half of the movie, he's pursuing things like the zine and the the owl's kiss and the dog killer and (laughs) whatever, like, random stray thought crosses his mind. And he's not actively pursuing her and then he seems to sort of remember like at really random intervals like oh yeah i've got this picture i don't know how this quest goes forward so let me run through my dialogue options and my quest list oh yeah 
do you know who this woman is? And he, he pulls out he the does, picture. He, he breaks out the picture more than once. He's, he breaks he, it out more than once, but it doesn't it doesn't have that like the monomaniacal Cherchez la femme, like that seeking after the obscure object of desire kind of feel to it. It's just sort of something that he thinks of from time to time, like, oh, yeah, I wonder what happened to her. And his obsession with code breaking and and code solving and secret messages and what does this mean seems bigger in my mind than any question about, for instance, whether she's safe. Though Though I think also in his mind, though, Every single one of those things has significance. Every single one of those things is telling one story. When we, as an as an audience, recognize that that's not true, uh, that there are that there are plenty of red, red herrings, uh, that he's encountering things that pieces that don't fit, and that's not really the way his mind works. So he he really is he really does start with this mystery of her disappearance, and you know she's got a little bit of a hobo code thing happening in her room, and and um and then any single thing he encounters, no matter how seemingly tangential. The way he's thinking about it is like this all is telling some sort of story and I have to figure out what that story is. Well, I mean, in the end, uh, if you if you do want to see a giant connection there, it's all that it takes place in Hollyweird at all. It all mm-hmm. takes place in Los Angeles, the tinsel town, the place that never sleeps, the the dream factory, uh, the place where the magic happens, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> all of these images like I'm a little obsessed with L- L.A. noir films because mm-hmm. I love LA as a source of symbolism. I love the idea of this place that's always sunny and bright and comfortable and evil. I love the idea of the place where everybody's looking to get famous and there's just a an entire group of people who exist to prey upon mm-hmm. the innocence of people who bring their innocence to town as though it's going to be an asset there. I love the degree to which LA just sets up all of these automatic stories about desire and uh, attempted fulfillment and potential success and potential huge fame. For the people who don't make it, there's pain and destruction and and often being exploited for the people that do make it it's the same things it's just a different form of the story i love la noir stories yeah i mean plus and plus the idea of it being illusory too i mean the film is a magic trick right i mean it's it's uh, the persistence of vision the 24 frames a second it's just it's all it's all a magic trick and it all can kind of just go away too so there's so there's nothing there's something impermanent about it you know and then of course chinatown also kind of gets into um, the fact that it's a uh, that it's unnatural that it's a desert yeah, uh, city. Chinatown is the brownest film <laughs> I can think of outside of like purposely sepia toned films. Like it's so brown and like like it actually feels kind of apart from a lot of uh, LA films in that way for me. Which I um, like Under the Silver Lake has more what I think of as you know uh, just a LA movie in general that that like superficial sheen and bright sun and saturated colors partly because Chinatown is like taking place in a very different era you know where Los Angeles is still sort of forming and that even Hollywood was still more nascent you know Mm -hmm. um, that wasn't as entrenched it's just this brownness just kept sticking out to me. And I think it's a reflection of the drought and, and it's, it's supposed to evoke that this is a desert, you know, this is not a lush, uh, naturally beautiful place that is all being artificially put on top of this kind of somewhat dead city, you know, and the, the look of it, I think, even though there are very, there's like beautiful set design and very there's lots of glamour yeah. you know in the look of it it all is this very like dull brown beige neutral <laughs> you know yeah uh, co- color palette and it's it was kind of fascinating yeah, you to, definitely want to hydrate at. while you're watching yeah yeah <laughs> uh, well and also you know and also again to this point you know i mean what if you're the desert and you you know scoop your hand to the ground i mean it's it's all sand that's falling between your fingers mm. too and and uh and there's that too of just of something that isn't entirely graspable that's going on yeah. right it's a, it's a rich setting and and i think that, i think it's also it's one of the two films you know, exploit in extremely different ways. I know, you know, I mean, there's plenty. There are plenty of <laughs> David Robert Mitchell has seen Chinatown, <laughs> and, and, and 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 there are points where the film pretty explicitly tips its hat at Chinatown. But but its take on the city is very different from what uh, what Polanski and, and Robert Towns take on the city is in terms of the way it looks and and what they're trying to evoke from that setting. 
Yeah, I mean, Towns and Polanski are in part playing on that idea of the desert. That's the the story of we don't belong here. The story of like this city is here on sufferance, and you know only only the works of man, which are fallible, uh, can manage to keep us alive here. And uh, under the Silver Lake feels like more cosmic in a way. It it it's not really concerned with the survival of the city or the survival of the human race here. It's it's just concerned with like big abstract unanswerable questions it feels nihilistic it does feel pretty nihilistic in, in a way that chinatown even as dark and as as it is doesn't feel like you know there it, it still seems like there is a potential for a way out in a way that in under the silver lake it's like we're already here this is this is how we are this is who we are now yeah, to some degree, it feels like, I mean, Silver Lake does get specifically cynical about like the idea of coming to LA, hoping to become a star. Like you've got this <laughs> this sad ring of uh, escorts, escorts yeah. that... I was on a soap opera from five months to six months old. <laughs> <laughs> and and now, now I'm doing sex work for a living, which... I, I don't know. It, it all takes on, I guess, a, just a different cast, given how incredibly like jaded and apathetic, like all of those women seem like they're they're all the exact same woman. Mm. Uh, and that that woman is sort of summed up in like some chewed bubble gum and uh, a shrug and gigantic heels. And they're always in threes. Or fours, uh, they they come they, <laughs> they mostly come in packs. mostly in threes. So yeah. yeah, they definitely. Are, are you all working on, an, on <laughs> some sort of some sort of conspiracy theory? They come in value packs. The, the Holy Trinity, something to do with the Holy Trinity. <laughs> well, I mean, mostly it's the Holy Trinity of uh, you know you've got to be buried with three women. Like two women isn't enough, and four women is too many. So two blondes and a brunette. Ah, uh, well, <laughs> I guess I guess we know now when we uh, bury ourselves under concrete like exactly how many women and of what varieties to bring with us cuz you got to you got to watch out for that before you get down there cuz you can't order in more women <laughs> once you get down there. Uh, Chinatown is widely available on DVD and Blu-ray from digital rental sites, and it's on Amazon Prime Video for subscribers. Under the Silver Lake had a three-day theatrical release window before it became available on VOD. You might still find it in theaters in certain areas, uh, but it's available on Vudu and Prime Video. We'll be right back with your next picture show. It's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I caught up with a movie that I wanted to see in theaters, but uh, never had the chance and is now available for digital rental. So I finally saw uh, The Kid Who Would Be King, which oh. is director Joe Cornish's mm. follow-up to his feature, uh, his debut feature, Attack the Block. Uh, first off, if you haven't seen Attack the Block, rectify that immediately. It's a really great teen comedy twist on an alien invasion story, and it stars a pre-Star Wars John Boyega. Uh, secondly, The Kid Who Would Be King is similar to Attack the Block in that it's doing a contemporary twist on a speculative fiction genre, this time fantasy, but it's different enough from that film that you shouldn't go in expecting the same uh, experience. Uh, as you can probably glean from the title, The Kid Who Would Be King is working in the realm of Arthurian legend, but it really feels like it's paying homage to a strain of all-ages childhood adventure movie that I associate pretty strongly with the 1980s, uh, your Goonies, your E.T., your Stand By Me. Uh, the plot centers on 12-year-old Alex, played by Louis Ashburn's Circus. Yes, that would be Andy Circus's son, uh, who, along with his goobery best friend, Betters, is bullied by some older kids at school, but always stands up for himself even when he gets knocked down. Uh, one night, Alex discovers an ancient-looking sword in an abandoned construction site, and to the film's credit, it pretty quickly confirms that, yes, this is Excalibur, and it gets on with the Arthurian antics. Alex ends up knighting betters along with the two older kids who bullied them in order to fight off the encroaching forces of the evil sorceress Morgana, who's been laying dormant beneath the ground for centuries uh, and has been awakened for reasons that are unclear, but it doesn't really matter. She's evil and that's all you need to know here. Oh, and naturally Merlin shows up in the form of a gangly, slightly older teen because Merlin ages backwards in this story. This is a pretty straight-ahead Arthurian tale transported to the modern day and played out by young actors, and it definitely skews more all-ages fantasy than Attack the Block did, but it has that same band of kids against the apocalypse setup that is both really nostalgic and really refreshing in the context of a well-played-out genre like this. 
the film frustratingly faints at subverting Arthurian tropes more than it actually does subvert them, particularly when it comes to Morgana's characterization and Alex's family lineage. But as a vehicle for exciting kids saving the world action, it works quite well, I think. Uh, Watching it, I definitely felt a sense of nostalgia for this kind of movie, which has mostly disappeared from the modern film landscape. Uh, And there's a lot of fun and inventive filmmaking on display that keeps the action moving through a runtime that is maybe just a skosh too long at two hours. Uh, But I was never bored during those two hours. And I think if you have any sort of affinity for childhood adventure stories or happen to have a child in your life who might enjoy it, uh, The Kid That Would Be King is definitely worth your time. It's available pretty much on all the usual platforms for digital rental. Did either of you catch up? with us we talked about par- doing it for the I show I, I really Scala. i really regret not doing because i've heard it was good and i wanted to see what joe cornish did after attack the block which you're right to say is a really good movie yep yeah. same same boat have not seen it oh, catch up with it yeah. uh tasha what about you i'm actually gonna punt a little here i have been uh deep in the the wilds of game of thrones and other uh television coverage and i've not seen many <laughs> movies lately uh-huh. But uh, I'm going to bring up Julie Hart's Fast Color again. Uh, I recommended this movie on this show almost exactly a year ago in connection with Avengers Infinity War. And now I'm recommending it again now that Avengers Endgame has come out uh, because weirdly it's in the theaters yeah. right now. It's <laughs> Every time I see a listing bar, I think of you and that I should go see it because of that recommendation. <laughs> you, you really should because it stars Gugu Mbatha-Ra, yeah. who is a, an actor that we both bonded over in uh, Beyond the Lights yeah. and who uh, we've just had a lot of uh, affinity and admiration for. And it's also it's a superhero movie sort of it's uh it's like the anti end game it's uh like counter programming to end game for people who do still like superheroes but it's the indie version it's the low-key personal family version and it's also starring a woman and specifically a woman of color and it's about deeply personal connections and it's about the difficulty of, of dealing with powers now as is so often the case with smaller films about superheroes the powers that she has are kind of a big metaphor for you know the the innate power of a woman or uh, the innate power of uh, an individual uh, kind of trying to seize upon like her personal potential essentially um but it's man it this movie is just so so well acted and so small and so pretty in a way and uh it stars Gugu Mbatha-Ra and Lorraine Toussaint who is an all-time favorite and David Strathairn who's an all-time favorite and it's just one of those films that you just kind of want to support to make sure that there are more films like that out there in the world like anybody who's uh headed to the theater like tonight to see Endgame for the 14th time because mm-hmm. uh, they can't give enough get enough of that like fist pump and cheering kind of feeling uh is probably not going to want to take time for this movie just yet uh but for people who like the tropes as a whole for the kind of people uh like us who read indie comic books and are still drawn to superhero stories just from completely different flavors and directions you know who like the tropes just want to see them handled slightly differently this is a really fun movie so fast color in theaters right now uh, i would check online for local listings because it's <laughs> yeah. definitely one of those small films that's going to play our art house theaters and have a slow rollout um and eventually end up on vod where you can perhaps find it a little bit more easily yeah i mean i definitely have heard that it's struggling pretty mightily to find uh viewers in theaters uh hopefully it will still be around or at least trickle around the country uh to give people a chance if they can't see it that way they can at least put it on their list and catch up with it later um, it'll it'll eventually be available it's, it's I, like, a, like a small scale or mid-scale superhero-ish movie can't find it you know it'd be nice if they that could find a place in our modern world scout what's been good for you lately uh well i want to talk about her smell uh <laughs> That title, man. I know people. I know. I know this movie is so beloved yes. of the festival crowd, but uh-huh. that that title though. That title. It, it reminds me. It reminds me. It's so much like uh, that scene in This Is Spinal Tap where he's playing the beautiful, uh, the beautiful uh, melody on the piano, and, and the title of the, so- of the song is "Suck My Love Pump." L- I mean, lick that's kind, lick that's my love like pump. Like her smell. Though I will say uh, that this film is, uh, you know, and this in keeping with uh, my appreciation of under the sober like off-putting i mean it, it, and so the title kind of fits into that uh spirit as well this is a film by alex ross perry whose movies really thrive on discord he did uh, listen up philip he did queen of earth uh he did a film called golden exits which is not quite as confrontational as his other work but his films are t- generally about characters who are in very strong conflict with each other who are very 
who keep it real quite substantially. And uh, in this case, you know, it stars Elizabeth Moss, who's been the star of his last few films as a Courtney Love-ish rocker named Becky something, um, who is uh, the head of this Slater Kinney-ish group called Something She that had, has had better times, has had their hits, is well-respected. But when we catch up with, with them in the movie, uh, Becky something is in the throes of, 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 of addiction. The, the band is really breaking apart. Uh, and the film really takes place in just a series of maybe like four or five very long set pieces. Like, like, you know, I mean, the first one is, is just behind the scenes at a, at a show that they've just completed where, where things are, are really out, out of control. Then they go to a studio and there's more stuff that's out of control. And it, it, it moves through and you do get this process where she's trying to find her way back. Uh, and it's quite touching, but the film really, makes you work for it in a, in a way that I think is quite gratifying. I, I, I had a tough time processing it the first time I saw it at Toronto, and then I saw it again for review, and it really opened up to me as being a, a very true and, 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 and soulful and beautifully acted film about rock and about addiction and about um, you know, this, this woman who's just barely holding on and, and trying to find her way back into to, to the light. And uh, I, I really love it. And um, I've really come to love it anyway and really have a lot of respect for Alex Ross Perry for really giving it that punk edge that he's obviously going for. Have, you, have either of you seen this one? No, I really want to. So music yeah, box. I I hear amazing yeah. things about it. Yeah, don't don't be too put off by the title or or the fact that it is very long or the fact that it is you know confrontational and difficult, particularly in the early going. Uh, don't let any of that <laughs> so, stuff so, put so, you so, off. So a little more. But you'll get there. Once you get you get to a moments of transcendence that will pay off all of the difficulties that you have. And I think you got. I think both of you all really like. I it. mean, Elizabeth Moss is one of those actors who you know, will will draw me to something that I may otherwise be pretty dubious about. So And yeah. I do it like a good for it. moment of transcendence that pays off everything. It, does, it really everything does. I, I, really, I really think that it's worth the effort to, to go see it. Maybe in a the theater too, because it is his most ambitious movie in terms of, of uh, style and, you know, it's it's impressive. Okay. Really. Well, yeah. as, as soon as I see Endgame for the 14th time. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to take some time, Tasha. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long movie. And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out May 14th and May 21st. Genevieve, what is coming up next? Everyone knows that American politics are hopeless, doomed always to be dominated by greedy people with bad intentions. But what our next pairing presupposes is, what if they're not? We'll start with 1995's The American President, starring Michael Douglas as a widowed president who shocks the nation and begins dating a lobbyist played by Annette Bening. Directed by Rob Reiner and scripted by Aaron Sorkin, it features walking, talking, and romancing. We were inspired to give it another look by The Long Shot, a new romantic-slash-political comedy starring Charlize Theron as an idealistic Secretary of State making an unlikely presidential run, with the help of a burned-out journalist played by Seth Rogen. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Chinatown, Under the Silver Lake, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpetroshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work out in the world at uh, at NPR, New York Times, Washington Post. Finally, I have something uh, up there on the movie Knocked Down the House, which is on, on Netflix May 1st. And then, and then you know, I'm on The Ringer, and I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Genevieve? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky, and you can find my work at Vulture.com, where I am the deputy TV editor editing all the Game of Thrones content and occasionally some things that are not about Game of Thrones. Tasha? <laughs> you can find me at TheVerge.com where I am the film and TV editor, occasionally writing about films like Endgame and endlessly writing about Game of Thrones. We'll all be glad when Game of Thrones is over <laughs> and we can get back to film. I'm on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And you can find our absent friend Keith Phipps at KeithPhipps.com where he collects his writings from various uh, outlets around the web. And you can find him on Twitter at, at KPhipps3000. 
You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. Uh, they're also very important for keeping Genevieve in finger guns, which she's <laughs> displaying right now. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up and every finger gun helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.